0: Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith. And on this episode, I'm joined by Hassan Youssef, former Canadian Labour Congress president for a seven-year term and newly appointed senator from Ontario. Our net zero accountability bill is now law. We've set a more ambitious 2030 target and significant climate action is underway with much more on its way. As I think through what should come next, I've increasingly turned my attention to a just and fair transition, and it's here that Youssef enters the conversation. Because before the news of his Senate appointment was public, certainly before I was aware of it, I'd ask him to join me to discuss his work as the co-chair of the task force for the Just Transition for Canadian Coal Power Workers and Communities, and the lessons we need to take from that work as we consider the impacts of a broader energy transition. At the end of our conversation, we get into what he hopes to bring to the Senate and what he thinks about some of the criticism thrown his way that he was too close to a liberal government as a union leader. But the bulk of our conversation is focused on the question of a just transition and what more we need to do to build on some of the commitments to training that we see in Budget 2021. Hassan, thanks so much for joining me. It's a great uh, great pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Well, I first asked you before I knew you were a senator and so I also want to say congratulations on your recent appointment. Well, listen. Uh, thank
1: you very much. I'm truly honored. Of course, uh, the Prime Minister, of course, having confidence me to uh, to appoint me. But I'm equally as exciting to work with my esteemed colleagues in the Senate, but also to represent my province and the country. I think this is a moment in terms of my own background and history. I bring a unique perspective to the debates and issues that are going to be in front of the Senate. But equally, I think I have a general concerns how we can help uh, strengthen this country and and of course knit that fabric a little bit tighter, so at least people have some value for the institution democratic society but equally to know that they've got voices in there who are going to echo some of the things that are important to them as families and, and, and of course individuals as workers
0: well i want to get to a conversation around the role you hope to play in the senate but as a starting point the reason i had reached out in the first instance was because i have turned my mind increasingly to this question of how we navigate a just transition And pre-pandemic, I got up in the House in one of the first speeches I gave in this parliament post-2019, and I said, our principal goal is to set Canada on a credible path to net zero while ensuring a just transition for affected workers and regions. And then the pandemic hit and that work towards a just transition act which was a commitment in the 2019 platform and it's in a mandate letter for minister reagan that fell by the wayside. i know i don't know if we need a just transition act by way of legislation but i do know we need a proper strategy in place and you were the co-chair of the task force on just transition for canadian coal power workers and communities obviously a more narrow focus than a just transition for workers in the fossil fuel energy sector more broadly but i expect important lessons to be learned nonetheless when we look to that broader transition.
1: The starting point for me was very basic, actually. There was a recognition, first of all, as a country, both federally and the provinces, there was agreement among everybody that by 2030, we should hopefully to make progress, we'll phase out the use of coal, and more importantly, we will then figure out how we help the provinces adapt to whatever they need to do to bridge, that divide because you couldn't go from this to that overnight. You have to build the capacity. We in, a, in 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 labor recognize that workers need to be part of this conversation. Their jobs, their livelihood, their communities are all going to be disrupted because we represent almost everyone at the facility that was generating electricity by burning coal. And we thought it's incredibly important for us to have a position. What's our views on the the, the phasing out of coal? Do we have a perspective How are we going to engage our members to support this effort? How can we now talk to them about what their needs would be, given that they're likely to lose their jobs? And more importantly, how do they see their future in that? So part of the the challenge was to get a task force going that was going to travel to those communities, that was going to meet with those workers and others in the community, meet with the the business, the employers who were running those facilities, Meet with the mayors of those communities and city council and others who had a, a perspective, and then of course meet with the workers themselves. So part of that was really to say, let's open this um, door to hear this. Now there's a lot of trepidation, I have to say, when we started this work for good reasons. Uh, people felt we were going to face with a lot of angry people. They're going to say, how dare you take away my job? This is a good job. You know, I'm making sixty to seventy, a hundred thousand dollars a year. You're asking me to give this up. For something, you can't really tell me in, in very detail what I'm going to be doing next. And then, of course, the other side of it, the impact it was going to have on their families and their community was equally as great. Because it means once these jobs are gone, what holds that community together? Because now the community's got this vacuum. These jobs disappear. Those incomes are gone. What's going to sustain that community in, in the future? And then the other side of this, of course... There's a broader question, you know, what confidence can we give these workers to get them to see themselves in the future of how we continue to grow the economy with them being part of it? And when we arrived in every community, I think we wanted to start out because we had this own internal debate in the labor movement that, first of all, we support the objective that both the provinces and the federal government had agreed on, that coal phase out was a good thing for the country. It was good for the climate, but equally it was good for human health and the environment overall. Because burning coal, knowing what we know of the science today, that is very toxic, not good for human health, is really terrible in terms of what it contributed in terms of pollution and greenhouse gases. So that anchored us very well. So we weren't going to have that debate on the road. We were already had, we had that debate when we decided to go on the roadshow. And the task force was unique. It had workers on it. It had environmentalists on it. It had people who had background around the, dealing with catastrophic challenges in the country, whether it was in the COD industry and other things that have happened that was on the task force. And it had a, a, a municipal councillor who were representing the FCM. So we did all outcome with like mind, but we had to form a coalition among ourselves as to how we're going to do this work. And I have to say, it was one of the best things I've done for my country enlightened my understanding, of course, of what we need to take care of as we do this in the near future. It also gave me the recognition, the hopefulness of Canadians in general, Canadian workers, Canadian communities about the future. I also came out of it uh, with a better understanding of the policy tools we need to devise to help us get to that place where we're not screaming and yelling at each other. We're recognizing the things that we're going to have to do as we move toward net zero is critical. So the traveling was good. We were in these communities. We heard a lot of things that people had to say. They had a lot of recommendations and suggestions. What was also important was the opportunity for people to come to a town hall in those gatherings that we had to let let them tell us what they wanted us to hear from them. And uh, those was probably, for me, one of the best moments in the whole task force work. It was unknown. We didn't know what to expect. There was a lot of nervousness among my colleagues. My God, people are going to come and scream at us and yell at us and whatever. And I said, "Well, no, it's quite possible. We have to hear that because somebody needs to hear it. Because if it, we don't take the time to listen, we're not going to learn anything how we can do this better in the next near future." Equally, it's important for people to be assured that those of us on this task force, why we agree to be here, we have to tell them a little bit about that story. So, one of the first things I said to many communities that we went. I said, I want you to know something very important for me. Others will tell you their own story, but as a co-chair, I want to tell you something. When I agreed to do this, I said to the government very clearly, I will not take any compensation for my efforts. There is no money involved. You need to know that up front. And it was like a sigh in the the room because they thought, this is weird. Why is he doing this anyway? Then of course, the next thing I said to them, I said, the reason I'm doing this because I do believe our country can find a way to bridge the divide that exists between workers and government policies that are so critical, because I do believe it is the right public policy decision to phase out the use of burning coal to generate electricity. The science is overwhelming on it. It will also protect the health of those who struggle with asthma and other ailments to, to have a healthier environment to live in. And more importantly, it will be contribute to the global effort in how we reduce greenhouse gases. So I started the conversation by anchoring, by making those kinds of statements to open. And I said, now. I'm going to turn it over to you for you to tell us your story, whatever the story you want us to hear, your ambivalence, your worry, your concern. We'll try to reflect on that. We've also recognized in traveling across the different uh, four provinces to document the story that each community will need a different approach as to how they will transition from burning coal to something different in terms of what they would need, because their needs will not be the same. So we recognized that when we were writing a report, we had to reflect differently from the different experience we, we encountered along the way. This. I have to tell you, without a doubt, there was extreme nervousness among everybody about doing this. They didn't know what the reaction was going to be. But as time continued, we certainly gained a lot of confidence and overcome some of the Worries we had initially going into this, and I, I could say without a doubt, when we did write the final report, there was no division. There was unanimous report on behalf of the entire task force. We took the time to allow a full debate but ultimately to get to a place where everybody agreed there don't no dissent in regards to the recommendation. We had two uh, very full public hearings in Saskatchewan. I was told uh, just before we are about to embark on our journey, might have been a week or two, our Saskatchewan member basically said, Hassan, um, it would be wise if you didn't come here. Nothing good will come from our task force if you come here. So we had a good discussion and I said to my colleagues, I said, let me be clear, not everybody on this task force have to go to Saskatchewan, but as a co-chair, I have to go to Saskatchewan. And if some of you don't want to come or all of you don't want to come, I'm going to go on my own. I will go with the staff and we're going to have hearings in Saskatchewan. And I will talk to people in these communities about what we are doing and why we're doing it. We did go to Saskatchewan. Everybody came and we had... The most wonderful discussion. And the discussion was about people's worry about the future. They're ambivalent; They don't know. They're concerned about how they would raise their family, what their community would look like if all of these jobs disappear. And we had, in some cases, hundreds of people that came out and even political people that came out. And some was trying to stir it up and others. And we had the most wonderful conversation with people. There were parents that came, the worker who was working in the facility, him and his wife came and their kids came. And the children came up and says, "What future am I going to have if my dad doesn't have a job? How do we build, build a family if we're not going to have employment anymore?" I didn't have all the answers for them, but what I did have was a commitment to say we were going to listen to them. And part of uh, you know my role was to try to impart some experience and knowledge, and and more importantly to assure them that as much as the phasing out of coal was going to happen, we were going to do our best to ensure that their dad or their mom. Uh, whoever was working in that facility would actually have a future. Some of the things that needs to be done jointly, both with the union, but also with the employer and how government can play a role. As you know, many of the provincial governments did not partake in our task force. This was simply a federal government effort, even though we had extended the invitation For government folks to come, uh, they didn't come and participate. In Saskatchewan Saskatchewan Power, which is the main employer for generating um, electricity, we did the same thing in Nova Scotia and and New Brunswick. When we were going there, they called us to tell us they prefer we didn't come because we're going to disrupt their workplace. People told their job's going to disappear and they may start quitting on them. And I said, no, no, we don't want that to do. And then, of course, they intervened politically to try to get other people to tell us. And then, of course, we said... Nobody's going to tell us we're coming to your province and so we're going to have a conversation, whether you like it or not. We did, and by the way, I think they recognized now was the right thing to do. We weren't there to disrupt; we were there to have a conversation. Here are some things you can start doing. You need to start auditing the skills of your work. What is your skill level? How many of your workforce is likely to retire by the time the phase out actually start happening? So, if you have a significant portion of the workforce going to retire, then It makes it easy. Okay, who's going to remain? What period are they going to remain that you might have to bridge? Now, who is not likely to remain? They may have to find new jobs. If we can audit their skills and help them improve their skills before they actually are going out the door, they will be in a far better position. You're doing this jointly. The union management can now sit down and start planning these things going forward. Equally, should workers have some pension bridging? For those who want to bridge because they may have three years they prefer not to pack up and leave their community they want to stay here so if you bridge them they'll remain here so what's going to require the future negotiations coming up with the union employer and how could you guys find some common solutions to that. Some people may want to relocate. Do they need a relocation allowance? What is it going to take to help them with that? Do we have to put some investment to the community when these jobs are starting to attract a new new business, using one of the regional development organizations to assist them with the the challenge they're going to meet? What role should the provincial government be playing in this effort as we go forward? Is there some things in the labor code you may want to change to give these workers some fundamental rights It's not left to chance Because this is going to happen. It's a fait accompli. Now we need to work backwards. What do we need to do to ensure we can accommodate? Should we need to start thinking about, should we give workers some mobility tax credit? If they can find a job someplace else, they may have to commute. Why punish them if they're going to take a job? They're not unemployed. But if it means we have to think of something different out of the box, should we not start thinking about that right now? So all of this kind of bring in full um, circle some understanding of the complexity in this. And while it may seem the principle, justice and transition seems very straightforward. Arriving at that location to achieve these things are always a little bit more complex, but the complexity can uh, disappear if you have an understanding how you can deal with those complexities one issue at a time, but also trying to make a full circle. These are all the things we're going to have to address if we want to address these workers' concerns.
0: And when we think of lessons learned from the work that you undertook, as it relates to the phase out of coal. And we apply some of those lessons to this broader conversation around energy transition. And there are some lessons that, that aren't going to be the same. When you look at the coal phase out, there is a common consensus. There are specific timelines. And as you say, we know this is going to happen. And now let's plan strategically to make sure we support workers along the way. We know that fossil fuels are not going to be produced at the same pace in the years ahead. The International Energy Agency tells us that we're going to see renewables and and clean energy in many ways displace fossil fuels, but there will continue to be a role for fossil fuels in a significant way for many years now. And there isn't that same clear as of this day, we're, we're done with fossil fuels entirely in a way that we have a plan for, for coal. So there are, there are some aspects that are clearly not the same in relation to the plan ahead. But when I look to the recommendations that your task force made, when I look to providing workers a pathway to retirement, so where workers are of a particular age that retraining and reskilling doesn't make any sense at all, that we create a pension bridging program for workers That makes a good amount of sense to me. When we look at this notion of transitioning workers to sustainable employment, which is a a central theme in in your report, the idea of creating a detailed and publicly available inventory, so that audit of skills, demographics of workers makes a good amount of sense. And then the, the key piece of this in many respects is not only training, because that gets talked about a lot, although I want to get to the fact that we aren't funding it in a sufficient way just yet, but also income supports to make sure we're bridging workers through this process so that they have comfort as they look to retrain, as they look to to reskill, that there is that income support for them and their families as they seek out new employment, because we know that the jobs won't be the same. But we want to make sure there are jobs in these communities.
1: Let me start on the latter point on the skills question. Workers are quite resilient in regard to their skills. Their skills are never the same. Their, their skills evolve because it's what we accumulate over a lifetime of work. I started off first as a mechanic, and then I worked my way through life, and I learned all kinds of other skills. But I think the importance of addressing the skills need is to also have an appreciation for the talent that is there, and more importantly, how that talent can be utilized in other places that will, of course, give the worker future, but also ensure that as the country continue to develop and, and develop certain uh, industries, how these workers might be able to, of course, be part of the, the future. The auditing of skills allows the worker themselves to appreciate that the skills they already have is extremely valuable. And if they're starting to think of another future with a different employer, what would they want to do that they currently don't possess in their skills arsenal to assist them to get that? Other job, and that's very important because what it does is give them a sense of confidence. Yes, I'm losing my job, but I got all these skills, and if I had this other skill, it would make my ability to to gain employment that much more it also means by doing the audit you're bringing the employer into the picture because they have a, a, some responsibility these are their their workers they have to take some ownership to say hey this is going to happen how do we help these workers who have made our companies very profitable at least end up having them a brighter future and confident but also the provinces need to take some responsibility because we transfer a lot of money to the provinces to help with skills development on a continuous basis they need to take some ownership and responsibility in partnering with the federal government and say, okay, how do we do this together seamlessly without actually pointing fingers at each other? Because the disruption is already happening. It's happened where thousands of workers in the oil and gas industry has already lost their jobs long before we we're in this mode that we're in right now. And this mode would accelerate over time. But the key is is for the partnership to recognize that, hey, don't blame us for the fact there's going to be Less and less reliance on fossil fuels it's already starting to happen. It's been happening for decades and continuing. And the workforce will continue, of course, having to readapt because workers are not simply going to discard They're creative people. So how do we allow them to have some creativity to their ability to, to build a brighter future, but also work together? So we're not pointing fingers with each other and the resources we're transferring to the provinces on a regular basis need to be incorporated in a way that says, okay, how do we help these particular workers? We're also working with their employer. And I think my only point is, is that you need some legislation to provide some guidance, because if you can provide a context of rights to say, these are the things you will get from us as the federal government. And if the province was to do equally that, then you truly have a seamless way of how to do. But even if the province doesn't want to come, the federal government need to figure this out, because I think a just transition legislation lay off some achievable goals that workers can take with them to know these are things that the federal government is going to do for us to help us build a better future. And I think too often or not, the uncertainty is what's scared. If you can exactly. give people some confidence, I think it will, they will be obviously less angry and frustrated. You know, listen, nobody wants to lose their job. But, you know, I always says every opportunity that might come with people can be equally as exciting if you can build a capacity for them to see it. Right now, we have thousands of workers who recently lost their job because we're not extensing uh, one of the pipelines to the United States. Those workers have an abundance of skills that is needed right now in the country. The question is, can we give them a mobility tax credit to just move to where the job is? Because they take all of that skills with them and there's other things they can do to contribute to the economy. But we have to be nimble to make those things happen in a, in a very, very short time frame so the workers don't see the disruption of their lives happening over a long period of time. Oh yeah, I just lost my job here. By the way, there's a shortage in in, in BC right now. I can get on a plane and I can go to BC. I'm going to continue to work. I've got employment. I have income. I have the security for my family. But more importantly, I have the support of my federal government to make this happen
0: immediately. I haven't seen those mobility income supports yet, but I have seen in the most recent budget. And I want to ask you about the scale of the task ahead and, and whether the federal government is meeting that need. Because when I see... $55 million over three years for a community workforce development program. It identifies two streams. One stream focuses on priority areas and they use the language of decarbonization and supporting a just transition for workers in transforming sectors like energy. And then there's also a $250 million program over three years, again, for training to help workers transition to new jobs, to scale up third-party delivered approaches, to upskill and redeploy workers to meet the needs of growing industries. Both of those programs, in some cases, they're clearly directly focused on a just transition. And then the larger funding the $250 million envelope could certainly be used for a just transition approach and transitioning workers to, to new employment. When I spoke to an individual, Brian O'Callaghan, he heads up the economic recovery project at the University of Oxford, and I asked him about the training conversation. And he basically said, no government around the world is getting this right yet. He emphasized the lackluster investments really around the world where we see green recovery packages... But training and income supports for workers is not really at the scale that we need it to be.
1: Well, I think in our system right now at the federal level, there's a lot of things that are supposedly committed for workers. They're all in different pots. I think what we need to do is to bring all of that together. What it will show the heft, what the commitment is, so people have an appreciation for it, but also title it so people are not confused. What does that mean? Because if you read the budget, most people completely missed any of the things that talked about just transition because they didn't see it explicitly addressing their needs. And I think one of the reasons for that, you have to have a minister in the cabinet that is championing this effort on behalf of the government and the country. Because in absence of that, who do we point? to is the champion for transition measures and support for workers in the cabinet because it's not is it HRSDC is this Mr Reagan who is it specifically is Miss Wilkinson? I think they all have something to do with it, but ultimately they have to be a champion in cabinet that takes on the responsibility. What that does, it means that the cabinet is also sees what that minister commitment is in terms of fighting for to ensure that the efforts of the government are fully realized and not squandered because nobody's taking these things up, even though you may have allocated resources in the budget. The second thing I too also think is why you need legislation, because it gives some direction to the country. We are committed to this project. We're going to succeed at this project. Because we're going to lay out some things that hold us accountable as a government, but it also give Canadians some comfort that their government is thinking about them because we know these disruptions will come. And we are prepared and we're going to do everything we can to assist you in, in that regard. And I think this is really critical, especially at this time, because for the workers who are going to be impacted, they're not stupid. They understand that changes are coming. They know that the future may not look as certain to them. What they don't know is what can they rely upon when that moment arrives? And should they be thinking about it now if there's an opportunity for them to go do something else? Or if there was some training for them to get getting that other skills. Ah, if I can get that skill within the next six months, by the way, I might be able to move on to other kinds of jobs I've been thinking about. But if I can't access that until I lose my job, then that doesn't help me get to a brighter future. You're telling me, wait till you lose your job before we can give you access to the skills. I think that really impairs the commitment of the federal government. And more importantly, it's not very good for the worker who wants to start planning their future. And to let them know that these things are available and let their union representative know these things are available to them now just makes the comfort level for people thinking about the future much more, I think, robust in our effort to try and help them going forward.
0: And on the politics of energy transition, I've been a vocal proponent of stronger climate action, but I completely understand if my family, if my father, if my loved one was in the sector and facing a change of employment or unemployment because of a transition, I completely understand the desire to push back against advocacy like mine to say, "Hang on a second, what are you doing for us?" and and that all sounds great, green transition and saving the planet, but what about what about our communities? What about my family? And you're pursuing this without without caring about us, and we're going to push back against your efforts as a result. I, I completely understand that, and so this lack of a fulsome conversation around what a transition means and around that unified, as you described, sort of approach to supporting families and workers and communities through whatever transition might come, it's going to happen with or without us here in Canada. And the way the world is moving, it is moving very quickly. And you see the recovery packages from governments around the world. Canada's isn't even the largest. So we really need to make sure that our workers, families and communities aren't left behind. And that means helping them through the transition and. Wouldn't a really, not only a unified effort, but a really significant down payment to say, just as the prime minister said during COVID, the federal government has your, your back. back. And isn't that what we need for Albertan families, for Saskatchewan families?
1: Yeah, I, I think that this is a very much, I think, what's missing right now. that There's a lot of things that we are committing to in the government to, to help workers and help their communities. But in, in, in absence of a champion, it's like if we didn't have a minister of the environment, we would all argue that, hey, we need a minister. Who's arguing for the environment? Who's going to be there to tell us uh, fundamentally the things we're going to have to do and who tell us in cabinet we have to do this? I think the unfortunate part about the transition file in the government is that there's lots of hands, but there is no one specific hand that are managing this. And I've been arguing uh, consistently now. As soon as the task force was finished, I, I, I made the argument to, to folks in the government that said you need to have a lead minister. You need to make sure that him or her, whoever that lead minister, it needs to be known to the public, it needs to be known to work, it needs to be known to by communities, it needs to be known to by unions so they can call him or her and uh, essentially they know who they have to engage with in regard to their needs or their concerns or their worry. But in absence of having that clear, defined role, I think is going to continue to frustrate us that we have the frustrations and anger building and nobody is able to engage those communities and workers who are having that anger and frustration because they don't know who who are we supposed to talk to but what they also want you to do is just not to have the conversation that you have their back they also want you to tell them specifically things that you're going to do to help them should they need that help because of the fact that you know their their workplace might be downsizing the number of people working in a sector might be reduced They want to know specifically, okay, what can I count on you to have? They also, I think one of the things that's going to be problematic going forward, because there are some of our provincial governments don't seem to recognize the responsibility of being straightforward with people in regard to what is coming, and more importantly, how we can work together. By the way, I love Alberta. I've been there. Alberta is the fabric of our country. We're never going to change that, and it will always remain the fabric of our country. So would be Saskatchewan. Another place in the country where disruption will come. You know, as much as we don't want to have these tough conversations with places like Alberta, we need to have the tough conversation. But also we need Albertans to realize they're part of Canada. We're never going to abandon them in the challenges that we faced in this country. They didn't do anything wrong. I told coal workers, had it not been for coal workers, we would not be the kind of well-developed country that we are today. They created the wealth, by the way, that grew this country and developed this country. That's how we actually built the railroad. It was steam engines. It was steam engines that built the country and connected the country. And coal workers played an important part, except history now has told us something. The science says, listen, this fuel that you're burning is going to destroy us as a humanity. We've got to take a different approach. And I think some may not want to hear it, but the majority understand, okay, times have changed. We've got to move forward. And I think Moving forward means you have to have a champion. To help you deal with the nitty-gritty is how we deal with these concerns that are very much the worry of families and community for good reasons. You know, it's about your livelihood. It's about, you know, your home. Can you raise your child here? Would you have to pack up and go someplace else? Would the community survive if 10,000 people lose their jobs in oil and gas sector? I think there is a way and we have to show people what we're going to do to attract. So let me come back to one thing, which has always been the positive of all of this. As we went through the task force work in Alberta, we had a municipal council, a guy named Rick Smith that was on our task force. He came from Saskatchewan. The Duke County—that's where he came out of. They're in the heart of the transition right now, oil and gas, but also with coal. He's one of the most hopeful human beings I ever met. We never met each other until the task force. We've became friends and buddies. We talk to each other all the time. Email me. I call him, and we're having this wonderful conversation every so often. He calls me to talk about it, and I can tell you, the hopefulness has come from the project because he realized today Rick is driving an electric car, but he lives in Saskatchewan, heart of oil, oil country. But he understood, you know, there are certain things you're not going to turn back. But equally, do you have some confidence in building a brighter future as you try to move forward? But also understood, they got to find a way to take care of the people in the community. They have to find a way to take care of the workers in the community. And more importantly, they have to do it in a way to give, build people's confidence, not build a cynicism. Don't exploit the fact that people are worried. And of course, they're, they're, they're not sure about the future.
0: I think the ethos of individualism that exists across the country in in some ways, but exists especially in Alberta and Saskatchewan in a more serious way, there is going to be an understanding that no one is entitled to the same work throughout their life. No one can expect the same kind of work. One hopes for it. But life throws you curveballs, and and you can't expect the same work throughout your life. But you can expect that the government is going to step up and support workers. So when we look to certainly workers who are not able to easily reskill because of their age, certainly I think there would be an expectation for greater income support and that pension bridging, the income support, but also the reskilling for individual workers. But your, your latter point is a really important one, which is also a focus on job creation and focus on new industries and opportunities. And so when we look at Alberta as an example, opportunities around hydrogen, opportunities around battery manufacturing, that the government does need to be seized with a clear strategy to say, we see a transition away from certain industries that is going to come. And so we're going to build industries to make sure that, that workers aren't left behind.
1: I couldn't agree with you more, but also there's one other point. I think the sooner we can agree to the principles that are going to anchor us in the just transition strategy, we can have the conversation about all the other things we're going to do to build a different economy as we move forward. The emphasis will be on the new economy we're trying to build rather than spending our time having a debate over and over whether or not they're going to be a transition because we don't have the anchor to allow us to move on. The minute we build the anchor, which is a just transition policy that is grounded in legislation and rights on behalf of workers in the community. We can start having that other conversation conversations that everything that we say and do is not like, oh, we're going to transition you from oil and gas or something. No, we're building a modern economy. But should you lose your job? Here's all the things that we've put in place for you. And you know they're available. Your employer know they're available. Your union know they're available. Your community know they're available. But in the meantime, we know we need to create new employment. And here's all the things we're going to do to create new employment for people to have, of course, a place to go to work. You're absolutely right. Nobody has a job for life. You'll be one Wonderful if you did. The reality, that's never been the case for workers. Over 500,000 workers lost manufacturing jobs during the 80s and the 90s in our country, completely overnight. It just disappeared. We didn't have a strategy what we were going to do with that when it happened. And there's a lot of resentment and anger built over that time. But I think we can learn from that experience. I also believe this is a moment when the country have to come together as to how we fight climate. The climate challenges to the country are incredibly important for us to get right. Because, by the way, if we can't lower the temperature by two and a half degrees or three three degrees, for us, in terms of surviving on this planet, it's going to be a real catastrophe. We're not doing this because it's just the right thing to do. We're doing this because if we want to preserve humanity as part of this planet, We need to take the necessary steps. And this is just not the Canadian responsibility. It's a global response. We'll do our part, but other equally around the world have to do their part. But we also have the confidence as a nation we can get this right. As much as every country is struggling to figure out what a just transition policy is, we're much farther along in Canada than anybody else on, on the planet, right? We're much farther along because of all the things we've done. We were the first country that created a task force that went out to talk about the phasing out of coal. Nobody's ever done that. I can tell you the enormous uh, sharing with the rest of the world as to how we did that. I went to spoke and all the ministers had gathered in Vancouver and they were, were meeting about what we did and how we did it. And the one thing they said, my God, they said, Sam, we never thought we had to actually go out and talk to people. this is on what basis do you design a policy if you're not talking to people? Yes, there is some tensions that will come with that conversation, but there's no substitute for it. You can't sit in a room and talk around an expert without talking to the people whose lives you are going to disrupt or whose lives are going to be disrupted. You have to engage them in this. And if you learn anything, if you truly want to build good public policy, you have to engage with the people whose lives are going to be disrupted and give them an opportunity to help you shape the narrative in which you're going to address their concerns.
0: And do everything you can to build trust. Because- Absolutely the basis of success of a policy like this ultimately can stand for trust.
1: Yes. We need allies, you know, and it took me some effort to get our movement to recognize that we had to lead this debate. We can't follow it. And that's what leadership is about. And today, I think, I feel such confidence that I've now left the Congress and going on to something else. We've built the foundation for climate policy in the Congress. Nobody's arguing about the things that we need to do as a labor movement leading. We intervene in the Supreme Court to support a government having, of course, necessary tools in terms of carbon pricing as one of the tools, not the only tool, but one of the tools. And the reason we intervene because we recognize it's an important tool if we want to meet certain high of objectives. The movement supported that effort. It wasn't just like I told him we need to do this and he has to say, go ahead and do whatever you want. We had a discussion about this. It is a smart thing to do, but equally, it's one of the tools in the broader public policy that we need to achieve if we're going to get all these other things right that we want to get how we move our country forward.
0: When well, you mentioned leaving the CLC. You are now a senator. You obviously have a passion for a success will just transition and and to see legislation through. And I expect you will have these conversations even more passionately with ministers now that you will see them more regularly in the halls of parliament when we get back there in the fall. Are there other issues that you want to see through in, in your new role? Obviously, you're going to bring a concern and passion for worker rights more generally, but are there specific issues you're really driven to see through? Well, I think, you know, we've been truly
1: as a nation, has been blessed with the one thing that has been the hallmark of what our nation represents. We're a country that nearly all people have come from all over the world to become a Canadian, to be part of this great country. Generations have come from the early set of times. And I think we've got to find a way to how we address the unity of the country in terms of the diversity they represent. There's been too much tensions. Uh, Some of the things we're seeing that manifest, hate and and of course uh, violence, is something I think we all have a responsibility for because we're not going to be a successful nation if we don't provide a mechanism for everybody to, to be successful. Not just for some to be successful, but all of us need to recognize that if we all want to succeed, and we also have to ensure the people that, of course, have not fared the best. And what the pandemic has revealed, there's far too many people falling through the cracks and how do we address those uh, concerns uh, going forward? Also, too, with the diversity of Canada, this is our strength. This is not our weakness. And fundamentally, we're going to need to attract people from other places to come to Canada through our immigration process. How do we build a greater synergy and unity among the country so we can make sure that Those who still ferment hate and divisions in our country, they have no place in this country to escape somebody holding them accountable. I think, you know, given my experience, my background as an immigrant who came to Canada and who grew up in this country and... Basically, I'm proud of my my, my heritage of, as a Canadian and the opportunity I had. How can I use that in a way to emphasize that with my esteemed comrades in, in 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 the Senate about how we need to work with this? We cannot allow these things to somehow disrupt what we've achieved so far. Imperfect as it is, we can do better. And more importantly, this is a moment we need to take stock of. So, how do we continue to shape this country and this country to continue to make it this rich mosaic? It has become. It's become this beacon of light. Everybody, look at my. God. God, how do they get that right? We're not perfect. There are some things we're still struggling with at the end of the day. But fundamentally, I think we've got a lot of it right. And we've got a lot of it right because there's so many of us who all share this passion. We can make this country a better place. But equally for those like myself who came here, there's a place for you in this society. There's an opportunity for you to contribute into the bigger picture that we're trying to build in the narrative. If we get this climate debate right how we are going to move forward. The success of Canada will be, certainly be something the world will look to. My gosh, how are these Canadians doing all that? But I think we are doing it because we're like-minded. We have to make compromise. We have to find common ground. Nothing is perfect. If I always think I could get my way, I would be at a whole different place right now. You never get your way. But you get an opportunity to find a compromise to bring and move people forward. And if you can do that, ultimately, I can achieve, can achieve much greater things. I'm hoping in the Senate. This will be the thing that I could contribute the most. But equally, I will learn as much with my comrades in the Senate. My colleagues, they've got experience, life experience. I will learn as much from them as I will hopefully bring my experience to bear in the debates that's going to happen in the Senate.
0: Well, I think you're right about the need for Canadian leadership on climate. And I look forward to working with you in relation to strengthening our social safety net, because I completely agree with you. That is one of the important lessons. We've learned in the course of this pandemic that we need to make sure we're lifting up everyone in our society and really lifting up the minimum expectations and standards, living standards for for everyone in this country, a wealthy country like Canada. I think that's the minimum that we should expect. When you talk about compromise And delivering on what you care about by listening, by working constructively, and yes, in in some cases, compromising. When you reflect on your seven years heading up the CLC, I've seen you publicly point to some issues of deliver on. I've seen other commentators say CPP enhancement, the recent commitment to a $15 an hour minimum wage. I think there's a ban on asbestos that you you played a role in. Obviously, you sat on a NAFTA council. You've sat on the Just Transition Task Force, as we've discussed at length. So you've been a voice for workers at the table in a number of different contexts. But you were also criticized for being too close to liberals. I wonder when you reflect on this notion of how do you actually constructively deliver on the things that you care about? At, At times, I don't always agree with the government. But I also know that sitting in my role, I can make the biggest difference I can on behalf of my communities and the issues that I care about. And I wonder how you reflect on the last seven years and that balance between constructively working with, but also criticizing the federal government at times because they've not been perfect on labor issues. Better, but not perfect. And I expect you to take that same approach in the Senate as an independent senator that we constructively with, but not be shy to criticize when the moment warrants.
1: Well, I think, you know, when you do these kind of jobs, as I was the president of Congress, I don't expect everybody to agree with me. I don't spend a lot of time losing sleep at night That. There's some criticism about me. I expect it will be criticism. I expect people will be quite harsh, but I also know at the end of the day, the greater good of trying to find a way to move forward for working people in this country is ultimately my responsibility. I wasn't elected to lead a political party. I was elected to be the leader of the Canadian Labour Congress. And my fundamental objective, how could I continue to improve the lives of working people, not just trade union members, all working people in this country. Yes, we expand the Canada Pension Plan. I spent 10 years of my life on that campaign in the trenches when nobody agreed, not a single government had agreed. When we started the campaign, this needed to be done. As a matter of fact, everybody told me, you're completely mad, it'll never happen. Never happen. The equation for amending the Canada Pension Plan can never be reached. There'll never be a consensus. Well, I have to say... Um, We did reach that consensus. We have actually improved the canapulation plan because this is a commitment to the next generation of Canadians. Your kids will have a much brighter future when they become adults and when they retire because of our collective effort. Yes, did we have to find a compromise to get here? Yes, we did. And I had to work with every political government across the country, regardless of their political strife, to make them appreciate the greater good we were trying to do on behalf of our nation. Banning asbestos was not a, yes, a personal thing for me, but it was the right public policy to say, no one need to die of this disease anymore in the future. Let's do the right thing. Pay equity for women in the federal jurisdiction, both public sector worker, but private sector. It means that women would have far more disposable income in the near future that will give them better pensions so they have better lives, we will give them more money in their pockets so they can raise their family if you're a single mother. It will enrich our country because their true value now is what we're compensating for, not judging on the gender of their work anymore. Yes, we just brought in the federal minimum wage. It puts a floor to say if workers are going to work, they should at least have enough money to pay their bills. If they're still living in poverty after they work an entire week, there's something wrong in what we're paying them. We stopped contract flipping in airports because there was no justification for allowing an employer to flip a contract only to have the other employer undercut the wages and the working conditions of those workers previously that worked for their employer. By the way, we brought in legislation to compensate women to say, if you have to take time off because of domestic violence, you will get paid. They can get five days paid if they have to go transfer their kids to a school, seek a new apartment, change your bank account, see a lawyer, see a doctor. That is not the law of this country at the federal level. We've actually achieved it in every province across the country. So women no longer will have to deal with this scourge of society, violence against women, and somehow bear the economic responsibility because they have to do the things that get their lives back together. We've enriched protection for women in sexual harassment legislation. For the first time, you as a member of parliament, your staff has legal protection. Before, they were not even covered by the code. Now they're covered, including people who work in the prime minister's office. We've ratified ILO conventions. This shows we have a global commitment to protecting workers under the UN system around the world. We've improved our trade agreements, most recently with NAFTA, because we took the time to say, yes, we're going to fight like hell. The Americans want to open this agreement, so be it. At the end of the day, we're going to come in with a vision how we can build better protection for workers. And these things. All of these needs, you have to find compromise. And compromise is the same thing we do at the bargain table every day. By the way, no union go to the table and come back with everything they demand with their employer. They sit there, they argue, they fuss, they fight. Ultimately, they come back and say, we have an agreement. We can ratify the agreement. And by the way, we're going to build a relationship. If we can do that in collective bargain why can't we do that with government? The citizens speak at election time to elect their government. Once the government is elected, it's my job as the president to work with the government they've elected. And by the way, I make no apologies for what we've achieved in the last six years in working with the federal government. I'm proud of the achievement. I'm proud of the people I was able to work with to achieve those things, but also proud of all the activists who came to Ottawa to lobby, who went back home to their local constituency and lobbied their MP. Because these are also part of their work. It wasn't just my work. We were doing this together. Are they critics? Yes, they are going to be critics about what, uh, what I do. Hey, listen, kiss my ass. I'm going to continue to do what I, I'm doing. The reality is I make no apologies for my commitment to working people and to this great country of ours because I know if we all do the same thing, we can certainly build a better country. But more importantly, we can ensure we're making some progress. Is it hard? Yes. Is it difficult to talk to somebody sometimes that you don't necessarily like? Yes. But that's not what the job is. It's not about personality. It's ultimately to say, can we do this thing? Can we actually move this policy forward to actually improve? For the first time in the history... I said to my young daughter recently, we're likely to see in the near future a national child care policy. I can be- begin to talk about what this will do to transform the lives of women and family lives in this country, because it means they're not going to have to get poor to get early learning and child care for their children going forward. It will make our country a much better place. We'll make it more equal. If you learn anything in the pandemic, women have shorted the ball unequally in the pandemic. Same as people of color who's in the front lines. We say they're heroes, but yet we pay them poorly. We don't even get them sick days. By the way, in the federal jurisdiction, we have three paid sick days in the federal code. No province has yet stepped up to even match that. Now, we need to do better. But the reality, at least we have three days. We also, we have in the federal code, reform the federal code part three. You can't misclassify a worker. Oh, you work for an agency. No, I work for you. You're going to pay me properly and treat me properly. We did that in the federal code. And we're advocating to said, yes, workers love to have their devices. They love to, you know, to be. Connected, but not 24 hours a day, not seven days a week. We need to find a way to move forward on the uh, regulation and legislation that said, yes, you have a right to disconnect. I work seven days a week, 24 hours a day. I never turn my phone off. But does my staff need to do that? The answer is no. They don't need to go. They need to have a bit of security to know, hey, I've got time to rest and recoup. I have some rights under the code. And I think all of these things we have done have enriched our country in a way that I couldn't possibly imagine. Uh, seven years ago, when I took over as the president, it was a dark cloud hanging over our country. We lifted that cloud and we reversed a lot of things that the previous government did was damaging to our movement and damaging to workers in this country. But it's going to take effort to continue to build on that. And for the part that I played in that, I make no apologies. I'm honored and proud of what I'm able to do now it's for my successor, of course, to build on that. And to figure out where they want to take the movement and how they want to build a successful movement.
0: Well, I have no doubt that you will take all of those lessons learned and the work that you put in for many years—not only in the seven years of leadership, but in the many years in advance of that as part of the labor movement—that you'll bring that voice to the Senate. I certainly look forward to seeing. Your voice in the Senate and to working with you on many issues from strengthening our social safety net to the Just Transition Act. And I really appreciate you joining me today.
1: Well, listen, my friend, thank you very kindly for reaching out to me. We can never have enough conversations about these things and how we all work on them together.
0: Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. It'll be good to have us on in the Senate. And I really do think the independent Senate is working exactly as it should. The appointments have been strong. And I know his appointment will be a welcome one as we go forward. As always, you can check out other episodes at uncommons.ca or your platform of choice. Please do leave a positive review if you like what we're doing. I am going to take a little bit of a hiatus over the month of August. So, we have one recorded episode with Mayor Kennedy Stewart on decriminalization coming up. There might be one or two other episodes that I record in the interim between now and the end of July, but I am going to take a bit of a hiatus. Who knows? We might have an election called at some point, in which case the hiatus might be extended into the fall. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it, I suppose. And if there are guests that you think would be a great idea or topics you want me to tackle keep reaching out info at beynate.ca by email or you can reach me on social media at bey8. otherwise thanks for listening and until next time